Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the HR revolution or evolution, no matter what way you look at it. This is about the revolution of HR for the evolution of business today. And we do that through thought leadership conversations with uh, professionals like Greg Newman today um, to really pick their brain, gain, get, garner some insights, um, some new ideas, maybe some tangible takeaways that we can start applying to our day jobs. But really, we're here to learn and have some fun. And today, my co-host is Jonna Wright. How are you doing today, Jonna? Hi, everyone. Glad to be here, finally. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so excited to be doing this episode with you. And we're, we're joined today by Greg Newman. Um, he works for Deloitte Australia, head of people analytics. Um, and uh, we could not be more excited. Be coming, he's coming off one of the biggest surveys ever on, on the island of uh, Australia there, or continent, excuse me. Um, and we are excited to be joined by uh, one of the prolific leaders today in People Analytics. So welcome, Greg. Thank you very much for having me. I think I'm legally obligated to start with saying g'day, folks. Uh, g'day from Australia. Um, yeah, calling in today from sunny Melbourne or chilly Melbourne, as it may be. <laughs> Which is hard to even conceptualize, as John was sharing before the episode, that we're having our our sunniest days here in Rochester, New York, and uh, you guys are having some of your snowy days there. Uh, but uh, I wanted to start out with um, really just getting to know you and, and I guess a little bit more about your culture. If you were to take John and I out to your favorite spot in Melbourne, uh, what, what are we having and what is like a traditional dish that you would make us try? Uh, so it would be pretty easy, right? So we're uh, probably most people think of Australia as a beer country. Um, Drinking beer in a beer garden on a summer day is a magical moment in Australia. Uh, we drink uh, bigger serves of beer. So it's most common to get a jug of beer uh, rather than an individual glass. It's much more about getting one big jug and sharing it around the table. Uh, an important thing to know in Australia is you always buy a round. So you would be expected, I'll buy the first round, you buy the second round. You never buy just yourself a drink. You always buy for the whole table. And the dish you're most likely to eat after 10 or 20 beers is called chicken parmigiana. So it's a fried chicken steak uh, with a little bit of Napoli tomato sauce, some ham, and then cheese on top. And it's uh, grilled afterwards. So a parmi, Australians shorten everything because we're fundamentally a lazy country. So we would never say a palm, chicken parmigiana. You'd just go up and say, I want a palmy, please. Love it. Love it. Love it. That is so awesome. A little spinoff of ours, the ham and then the grilling again. But it sounds delicious, delicious. So we're enjoying some hot weather here. You're enjoying some cold weather there. I know Kevin just alluded to that. Are you a skier? I know Melbourne's a big ski area is Victoria, right? Um any, any recreational tendencies is skiing one of them? So, so I'm not a big skier. I'm a, a, I love alpine. So I'm actually a New Zealander by birth. So New Zealand has proper sized mountains. Uh, Australia has some good big hills, but they have managed to get some good ski, good skiing in Australia, uh, especially here in Victoria, a little bit of Southern New South Wales. But I would say if you really want to get lots of powder and lots of snow time i would definitely spend the extra three and a half hours travel over to new zealand where the ski fields are just on a on a much more american scale 
Awesome. Well, I have awesome. to ask because John and I said we are absolutely not calling this man a Kiwi because that is that is anti that is very not not kosher. Right. Um, but you've lived in both countries, it, it, it sounds like. And you, it, you were sharing that you've actually lived in seven and visited 86. You, you shared the craziest spot that you visited to. But what was your favorite spot um, that you ever got to visit and why? If, if I only did one trip overseas, it would be to Iceland. Wow. So Iceland in the middle of summer, 24 hours sunshine, so you can maximize your holiday time. I'm not a religious man, but it is a country that looks like God just finished making it. Wow. So everything is fresh. You have glaciers, mountains, amazing beaches and lakes massive waterfalls everything about it is is without a doubt the best scenery in the world uh so yeah my number one would be iceland but i've got a long list after that depending on what kind of holiday you want to have wow i'm adding that to my list so, for sure yeah so people analytics slash uh you know tour guide and and world world travel advisor greg will call you up on those notes awesome i'm available to answer any of those questions yep <laughs> fabulous fabulous so I, I wanted to, to kind of, I guess, start with your journey, Greg, um, because I think it's an interesting one. And probably uh, some of the listeners to the podcast themselves are in an HRS role or a payroll specialist. You know, they're really working with data all day and every day. Um, and I saw that that was kind of your transition. Um, and I have to ask, was, was because you were working with that data and then started to understand where you, I guess, could find um, occurrences or oddities or where to start digging deeper is that how you made your leap into people analytics no so the the journey for me was i started off at college in new zealand doing industrial relations uh then met a lovely aussie lady who's now my wife moved to australia australia didn't offer industrial relations as a major so i switched to hr and then spent three weeks in a hr department in a big hotel chain and quickly realized that i'm not nice enough to work in hr so pivoted to HR technology. So I ended up doing 15 years uh, of SAP implementations around the world, literally around the world on four different continents, um, but kind of became a little jaded because even though we were doing massive 50, 60 country rollouts, we were actually just doing processes that were easy rather than important. So we were doing onboarding and, you know, hire to retire and those fairly formulaic processes, but seldom a global template looked at performance, internal mobility, you know, all of that really actually critical stuff. So I, I was a bit jaded with spending hundreds of millions of dollars of clients' money to not actually uplift HR's capability. So when we moved to Singapore, I met some guys who were in a startup uh, and they, it wasn't even called People Analytics then, but we were scraping email metadata from inside organizations. So harvesting hundreds of millions of email messages and mapping out the internal networks of the organization in real time. And so with that set of really fresh data, we were able to do stuff that your traditional static HRIS data just doesn't, doesn't surface. 
How do I collaborate? How do I influence? Who do I work with? You know, those questions have always been really hard to answer. Um, so I moved into people analytics because I was like, there are much more important things that we're not measuring and, and we're not answering for the business. That's awesome. That's awesome. Greg, it, it makes me think about, you know, you said I, I didn't spend more than what, three weeks in, in HR and, and decided maybe it wasn't for you. And, and I think that, you know, here we are, HR evolution or HR revolution. Our, our hope is that traditional HR is going by the wayside and we are moving into a space of modern HR practice. I know I'm a proponent of it um, with a basis of design thinking, co-creation and user experience, but it needs a lot of data. Not getting into that, but you just said, you know, playing in that analytics, that data, so many people want to get there, or maybe they don't, but where's like a beginning spot? Where is somebody who's hungry for that, but isn't sure like, how do I start? Um, so that hunger is the key thing, right? For me, and having worked with people analytics teams all over the world, that hunger is the key determinant of success. It's not what your coding skills are. It's not whether you've got a data science degree, but that real enthusiasm and passion. And then I think the most important thing is to, I say follow the money, but it's follow the money and follow the demand. So find a part of the business that's data oriented, that is asking questions and asking for evidence and start to supply them with small signals from the data. You don't have to transform them on the first hit. You don't have to revolutionize anything the first time, but start to, I suppose it's like being a drug dealer, give them a little taste, get them hooked and build up that demand for more evidence. And for me, the, the end result is you should be arming your CHR or CPO with as much data and hard numbers as a CFO has. They should be able to turn up to those exec level discussions with evidence about their impact, their progress, and seldom HR has traditionally been able to get into that position. Yeah, I agree. I, I have a follow-up there just in terms of the hunger, innate or teachable and coachable? So we're seeing it as definitely teachable, much easier if it's innate, but we look at that, um, how do, so we often get really enthusiastic people analytics teams, but in an organization that's maybe not that data literate or data hungry from the top, but we've seen good success in starting small, working local, creating some relatively short-term impacts that demonstrates results, and then teams successfully using that to convert the leadership to be much more data and evidence sort of thinkers. And, and, and again, it's, it's, it's like you said, and I love how you keep using the terminology data hunger, right? And, and it almost is a hunger for data because it's almost like retraining or re, relearning things, um, giving new information that you've never really had before. And, and you're almost learning how to walk all over again because some of these metrics that you are talking about, and I know that I look at, and, and a lot of us look at in the people analytics space and HR space, are actually better predictors of, of the information they've always gotten, right? And, and I think that that realization is almost hard to, to, to come by. And like you said, it's almost like spoon feeding them along to that bigger piece of cheese, right? 
how have you found it an effective way to, to start establishing, I guess, that credibility, if you will, and that trust um, in order to, to really, and, and you say follow the money, and I agree with you because a lot of times HR is so disconnected from the business, they don't even understand where they're spending money, where they're making money, so on and so forth. Um, so they can't find those breadcrumbs that equal uh, the bigger piece of toast, right? How yeah. have you, I guess, built and established that credibility and, and those almost relationships in essence um, to be able to find the value in the data and actionable data um, that they actually take and deliver? I think the key thing is to not try and replace someone else's genius with data, but to augment and improve their decision-making. Um, I, you know, it's really important, especially when you start pushing this stuff out to line managers, that you don't say the way you've been doing things is wrong. You don't add any value because they're 50, 60 years of work experience. They do know how to make good decisions. They do know how to run their business. And I think the best we can hope for is to incrementally improve the quality of their decisions with supporting data. and. And, and I think that's when it really starts to hum. When we're not saying, I'm going to tell you who's leaving, mm -hmm. but in fact, say, you've probably got suspicions, you've got your own hunches about who's disengaged in the workforce. Let's try and help you uh, react to that better by supplying some information that confirms your suspicions or disproves them, but is only one small part of a much bigger set of thinking. And I love what you said just about the the years of experience, right? Because is it experience or is it is it education, right? What is more valuable almost in essence? But I say this quite often because my buddy's a data scientist and he knows R prolifically. He te teaches others on it, right? Um, but if you gave him a data set of human capital metrics and, 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 and said, hey, here it is, like, tell me some exciting things out of this data, they, they're not able to do that because of lack of experience and, and almost subject matter expertise, if you will. And that's where it's almost like, how do we empower, how do we get HR professionals or payroll specialists, you know, that might be going by the wayside at some point, thanks to automation. And, and how do we start arming them and I guess preparing them mentally as to getting them comfortable about how to ask questions of data and learn from it? Uh, and there's a couple of things picking up on what you said, right? So the, I think the the, the fastest way to fail is to get a whole lot of data, hire a data scientist, give them some pizza, put them in a basement room and say, what are our problems, right? Look in the data until you find it. They'll quickly see that the problems they find are pretty much irrelevant to the business in most cases. And we flip that conversation around and we actually go to the business first and say, what are your strategic objectives? What are your KPIs? What are your burning platforms? Uh, and really start with those and then try and confirm or deny those questions in the data. It enables you to focus in quickly on specific problems. It doesn't waste effort and time. Uh, and that's definitely, I think, the key mistake a lot of organizations make. Um, and in terms of uh, how to help, uh, HR become more data literate. I think it is a good set of dashboards um, 
and Adam McKinnon kind of, who's a smart, much smarter bloke than me in this field, but he kind of summed it up really nicely. And he said that your dashboards should do three things. They should arm your HR people with the lie of the land. What's going on? Where are we now? They should give enough evidence to back up making a change. So you should be able to look at your dashboards and see, oh, we're going off in terms of graduate hire. We're not retaining enough people in this part of the business. They should provide evidence to drive change. And thirdly, they should be there to measure the impact and hopefully the ROI. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at your dashboards in terms of those are the, the asks of the dashboarding and the outputs and then making sure your HR people realize that's the point of them. It's not just to sit there and casually cruise the data once a month and see what's there. Yeah. One of the, one summarization, John, if I could, is you're also almost said there, Greg, that you need quanti quantitative and qualitative data in order to actually gain insights out of it. And I, I love that that point that you made. And I just wanted to, to share that, that you almost need both sides of the story in order to know where to look specifically and then use data to, to help you dig deeper and actually find potentially the root causes to some of the challenges. Awesome. And I think you again you've hit on a key point there. Sorry to overtalk the donor. No, um, and right. that is the storytelling. It's not about the data. You can throw slides at people till they literally sink in PowerPoint slides, but you need to wrap that in a convincing story that's going to engage someone. And that storytelling, qualitative, quantitative stuff, that combo is where the magic happens. Mm -hmm. I, this is like music to my ears. I love what you're saying and a term uh, in a newer organization I'm with recently um, shared narrative with numbers. And, and so many times we can be so qualitative minus the numbers. Tell that good story, but where are the numbers? Um, and then sometimes it's like you said, just we're, we're data rich, but information poor. And, and Greg, I love what you said. It's business first and getting to know the business, what ails the business, or not always what ails, but where do we want to go? Where do we want to be? And that predictive, that predictive space um, and, and getting good at working with finance. <laughs> Don't be afraid to work with finance as HR. <laughs> so oh, that looks like they got a reaction. If you want to explain your reaction there, I am happy to hear it. <laughs> yeah, um, so the business I find are pretty uncomfortable with HR metrics because they don't translate to their priorities. So if I give you, if I go out to a, uh, a factory warehouse manager and talk about internal mobility moves and lateral hires and diversity and equity numbers, they're thinking sales revenue, injuries, profit margin. And so I think we need to take those things and, and parlay them or relate them to the things that are happening in the business. So. For example, diversity, equity, and inclusion, my favorite topic, but let's not look at it standalone. Let's demonstrate to a warehouse manager that a more diverse warehouse has higher retention rates, higher innovation rates, and less injuries. Then suddenly DE&I becomes interesting to them. But if I just say, here's your count of underrepresented groups in your warehouse, they're like, what can I do with that? Um, so I think that parlaying it into business results is where it really starts to be magical and said to be Master. one of the hardest parts right and i think that the that translation role between the two is is really hard and really difficult because you 
have to have an awareness and acumen as to what really in, individually motivates that that particular professional, whether it's a bonus that they don't want to really tell you about. If you keep asking why, 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 if, op, if they get compensated on operational savings within the year, then you understand why, 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 right? And, and really getting down to the root cause of things. And that's really what I see a lot of businesses doing because they're acting kind of with that gut feeling and instinct um, that they keep almost chasing ghosts, right? That they're going after the actual symptoms and not the disease itself. Um, I guess when you're st first um, kind of diving into the diversity, equity, and inclusion piece, I know it's a really important topic uh, for, for myself and Jana, and, and it sounds like you, so I, I can't help myself but go there. Um, when you're trying to, to make some of these systemic changes, right, within organizations, I, I believe that you start with equity, you move to inclusion, and then, and then you earn the right for diversity. Um, what types of data points are, are you suggesting that organizations start to really look at and monitor um, that they can start to maybe prioritize um, some of those key KPIs um, that you found within DEI? So the and and I could go, I could talk for seven days on this, right? But for me, the one of the traditional blind spots in organizations is the equity is the inclusion stuff, right? So so how do we measure? how inclusive we are as an organization and at what level of granularity do we really want to understand that? And that's where I think the organizational network analytics stuff is the best source, oh, one of the best sources, right? So organizational network analytics, you can map networks of organizations through um, active where you go out and survey people and say, how do you feel? Who are you connected to? Who empowers you? There's also the passive data source where you go and scrape communications data from an organization ethically and transparently. <laughs> I was um, waiting for that asterisk, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but that's a really good proxy, but it's only a proxy, right? If I feel included or not is a really complex personal discussion. But what about saying, how do employees get treated in terms of their workplace relationships within a team of people doing the same job? Do we see the same levels of relationship building, of communications, of being invited to things? Can we start to get signals of inclusion at maybe a team level? In individual level, it starts to get really scary, but when appropriate, when handled Authentically, I think it can be done, but looking at a team level and saying, we are seeing different patterns of communication with different parts of our workforce is a great leading indicator to start to say, well, maybe we should survey these people and ask how they feel. Um, but inclusion for me is the uh, similar to your perspective. I think starting to get a handle on inclusion and how that's changing for, for individuals is probably the key signal. So Greg, you just got done with a really big project and I'm not going to steal your thunder there. Do you mind if we switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about that and maybe what's transferable? You know, during COVID, we were very jealous in the United States as Australia because the you know, the passability of COVID maybe was a little more contained, but, um, you know, on, on what you've learned, I think we can learn from you and in our audience, we can share, you know, some of that, that data that's transferable, some of those themes. Yep. So I'm, I'm happy to, I'm, ha I'm happy to say that I did the first half of COVID in Arizona and the second half of the COVID in Melbourne. So I've managed to get the whole experience for better or for worse. 
Um, so we've just finished the first ever national survey of people analytics maturity in Australia. So we reached out to 26 different organizations. Uh, we did one hour qualitative interviews with them and we used um, the Deloitte people analytics maturity model, which is an evolution of the Burson one you may know from previous years, but it's, it's much more holistic now. So it says instead of just, are you doing reporting? Are you descriptive, predictive AI? Instead it says actually there's seven big things that influence people's maturity. And that is their culture, data literacy, team capability, technology stack, that kind of thing. So we talked to 26 different organizations and we talked to them about where they are in their people analytics journey. And probably the coolest thing we uncovered is we found a set of behaviors that more mature organizations are doing that's quite different to what less mature organizations are doing. And I'll, I'll run you through them pretty quickly. Um, there's eight of them. Number one, they are spending a lot more time responding and being reactive to the CEO, CHRO. So they are concentrating their efforts on either capitalizing on them being data hungry or educating them to become data hungry. So they're creating or writing that top-down requirement. Um, number two, we are looking at teams that are much more effective in partnering with IT. So they're much more about building strong relationships with IT, building up trust, probably because HR isn't traditionally that good a customer for IT. We don't always do real good work or deliver good projects or give them decent requirements or any requirements. Um, number three is a real move to sustainable reporting. So this was a genius suggestion from one of the respondents summed it up pretty well they crowdsource their reporting and dashboard demand. So the more upvotes they get for a requirement, the faster they build it. So they're spending less time going down rabbit holes for a single user. They're being much more um, efficient with their time, but importantly, they're also building a much better and more cohesive user community because teams know they need to collaborate with other teams if they're gonna get their requirements to the top of the stack. Um, number four is a focus on tactical projects. So though we have our big strategic priorities, we're trying to answer those business KPIs, more advanced teams are also following the money and doing smaller, shorter engagements that answer business problems in two months or three months and really build the demand and prove the model. Um, I have to go to my list because I uh, struggle with my recollection in my old age. Um, more mature organizations are also much better at combining data sets. So a lot of teams are still saying, we look at HR data to answer this type of problem. Then we look at learning data. Then we look at survey data. More mature organizations are saying, actually engagement gives us insights to learning. Engagement gives us insights to DE and I. So we should start looking at that stuff more holistically. Um, they're much more active at building community. So like we talked about stakeholders earlier, they're much more structured and, and managing a stakeholder community, getting them together more regularly, educating and training them. But then they're able to then turn that into what we're calling persona-led design. So instead of answering the 300 users, saying actually we've only got 20 or 30 personas. So let's just build everything at that scale. Um, 
Number seven is governance as an accelerator. And that's surprising. Most teams think of governance as a hindrance, but we talked to some really smart organizations that used a good governance structure as a set of guardrails that meant that they could scale their project delivery really quickly because every question was answered and everything was, um, was set up for them to just follow a process. The last one, and I'm sure all of these things are pretty global, people analytics people are lonely. Mm. Often, especially in smaller teams, there's only one or two people who are really data-driven in the HR department. Um, so we saw that more mature organizations spend a lot more time talking to other data teams, finance, procurement, sales and distribution, and they were using those relationships to enable them to um, solve problems, crowdsource genius, you know, reuse software licenses and save money and all that kind of thing. So they were the, the eight, I think, most interesting things that we saw organizations can do differently to accelerate their impact. Yeah. Wow. I need to invite you to a team meeting. <laughs> we just we just had some of these discussions like today. <laughs> um, I I love the personas one, and I think that um, again going back to like how I approach HR is from a space of design thinking and user experience co-creation too many times traditional HR does something to an organization and the organization says, Thanks, we didn't ask for that. And, and it comes from that IT belief, you know, not getting to a million dollars of spend with the wrong product created. Um, and I think that so many times in, in whether it's IT or finance, HR, you know, these operations areas, it is that focus that needs to be on co-creation. I love that you said, build those 30 personas wherever it is in the business. And, and maybe it's the CEO and the CHRO. Um, Greg, there are just some great long discussions that could come out of all of those. They're awesome. The governance as accelerator is the one that just jumped right out to me. <laughs> um, because I think that sometimes people think of it as like bureaucracy. Um, and it's not, but I feel like when there's, and maybe a, I'd like to clarify with you what you mean by that a little deeper, but you know, when there's process, it builds consistency, consistency can build trust, trust can build that capacity fast. Kevin, that's mine. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but I, I, I just, you know, can you dip a little bit more into the governance piece? Yep. So, so the best example, one of the respondents had got to a point and, and, you know, they're not a particularly, they're not an organization that at first glance would be particularly advanced. They're not a high tech company or anything like that, but they were very governance structured and they got to a point where their data privacy, ethics, project methodology, governance framework is so well documented that they're actually subcontracting all of their data science projects to the local university. Wow. So they've created a toolkit that means they can hand a set of anonymized data off to master's students. They pop back up in three months and say, hey, presto, we've answered your question. Wow. That's, and that's, the, holy, that's the holy grail, right? But, but I don't think many of us have even thought about using it as a competitive advantage. We just think of it as this pain in the butt group that keeps coming back and layering more paperwork on us. I think it's about stepping past that and, and using it as, a, as an accelerator. Yeah, 
And I, I think to your earlier point, though, it requires us to learn new skills, right, and 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 learn new tricks. I mean, in order to to evolve ourselves, and that's really where where the revolution evolution part comes with it. You you either evolve, you adapt, or you die, and and that's what you can start to see to these traditional roles within HR when they are so administrative and process driven of how easily some of these processes can easily be eliminated through the thanks of technology and and continuous advancement in AI. Um, and, and I think we, the finance world, like uh, the CPAs are, are starting to realize very similarly to, to the world of finance. If it's, if it's numbers driven and it's just repetitive tasks, then, then there's things that can automate that for us. Um, one of the things that you uh, were, were touching on and, and, and I really wanted to go back to as well within that report was um, we talk about um, the combination of data sets. Um, and, and, and I love what you said, because typically it, it goes in the same parody of, of businesses working in those siloed natures. And I think from that is understanding you can find certain causations or, or potential, potential reasonings for things that happen. But to garner that full picture what were you noticing within those organizations as to what was most successful, like collecting of the of multiple financial data, sales data? I know you said follow the money, but that also follow the money probably lists how to prioritize what was most valuable. How did they do that? Um, so I, I, I'm getting old, so my recall is not perfect. But back when we're, I was building global HR systems, we we did some number running and I think we determined the average employee had about 70 pieces of data in the global HRIS and they on average had three data changes a year. Wow. Right. Salary, yeah. pay grade, performance score. So that corpus of traditional HRIS data is pretty static. Yeah. Right. So if we're looking for changes in attrition, but we only put in three master data changes a year, there's no point going in every week to see if this stuff is changing because the amount of time since I had a one-on-one -on -one with my manager is just, just slowly blowing out. Um, so if you contrast that with survey data, right? So some of the organizations we talked to were at the point now where their surveys were pumping out every two months and they were not doing the whole organization every time, but they were following the problem, surveying on specific topics with specific parts of the business. If you start to combine that employee experience engagement data with your traditional static HRIS data, then you can start to say, we can measure this impact every two months. We can see if there's a change every quarter. And that's where the magic of combined data starts to really create impact. The other example that I think is exciting, we're just embarking on this for the first time, is customer experience and employee experience. Like these are two very similar signals, but if you Google it, if you follow David Green's regularly updates, it's not a topic people are combining and it's kind of surprising, right? Because customer experience is already established to lead to revenue, uptick up in one, uptick in the other. Very seldom are people saying, well, does employee experience drive good customer experience? So we're starting on our first project now, working with a team who, which is our marketing sales team, they've never worked with HR in this organization. They've done some basic stuff about understanding the demographics of a, of a retail outlet, 
but nothing beyond that. So I think that's a great example of jumping into other teams and saying, holy guacamole, you know, you've got customer survey data that's updated every month. We've got employee experience data that's updated every two months. Here's somewhere where we could determine problems, put in interventions and measure their impact in, in a nice tight six month cycle. Yeah, and those are far more predictive, as you're saying, that we were typical net promoter scores was, was a, a, a gauge, but employee net promoter scores never got the same influence as, as, a, as an MPS score, right? Oh, wow. And we all know, and, oh, wow. and I don't even know who came up with that, uh, that formula, but I, I don't know if I'm buying all of that formula when I see the MPS scores. It's almost like an inflated number that really doesn't make sense to anybody. Because um, it doesn't follow the natural grades of <laughs> schooling, I guess. Yeah, it's another HR metric that the business is confused by, right? So, yeah, yeah. I guess I wanted to kind of uh, go back because because it's funny to hear you say uh, employee experience equals customer experience because. I think we have so many stories uh, and we have one locally here with Wegmans and you'll have to look it up, but they called themselves an HR company that happens to sell groceries. Right. Um, and I think it's very intentional on the employee experience itself. Organizations that are trying to restructure right now and, and, and almost rebrand themselves, but rebuild their culture or rebuild their trust. What types of signals or what types of data points would you have them to start to look at as where to improve that employee experience? Like what's some of the low hanging fruit outside of onboarding that most of us should know at this point? So one of the areas we're seeing is sort of the hot topic. I think it's number three in our hottest topics in the survey is uh, wellness to burnout, right? Being two ends of a continuum. I think there was a, a probably... Um, slightly incorrect belief from managers that when I saw you in the office physically, I had a good idea of your wellness state and your risk of burnout. I don't believe that was true, but for maybe for great managers, it was. But now that we've kind of uh, moved to a point where for the near future, I think hybrid is going to be uh, a priority for most organizations. I don't personally believe it'll last, but at the moment, hybrid means invisibility for a lot of managers. So I think there's a big um, increase in interest in what are those signals that we can get that are a proxy for employee wellness and, and risk of burnout. And I'm thinking all of the amazing organizational network analytic products that are out there, things like Microsoft Viva, you know, they're really good signals and, and increasingly targeted survey products. Um, I think they're the big signals that will help organizations to start to understand, have we created a permanent change? Is this sustainable? Are new, are new people to your onboarding uh, example, are new starters getting the right level of immersion and cultural sort of integration? I think those more frequent signals from those type of tools will be the key to answering those questions. That's great. I, I love my Viva. Uh, I've been using 365 for four years, though, and into so many people, it's new. What? There's insights in Microsoft. There's, and, and I think for leadership, you know, wellness, well-being, um, it's still that struggle of, of, Greg, you said it, you know, hype hybrid. You, I think you commented, I don't know if it's going to be last, or, or you may not be convinced it's going to last. Um, but I think that we're still in some parts of the country of the world, possibly things I've read, 
you know, we want people in the office because that shows they're working. Um, I, you know, do you have just some insights, some thoughts there? Because I think that is something though, I, I love the continuum wellness to burnout. Um, I think that really right now, and, and we can look at benefits, we can look at different areas, but I think that many employers are struggling with like how to's and it's not buying everyone a yoga subscription it's not buying everyone you know um in insight timer you know i don't know all the different apps that we can we can purchase for people it kevin and i have talked about it extensively it is talking to people and understanding where they are and that takes time but what do you what are your thoughts there um so i think Someone shared a, a great graph on LinkedIn that showed the urge to return to the office. And, and I see it in our organization. Um, young people, like I really pity the graduates and the new starters who have started their working life in, in the last two years because they haven't seen how an office runs, how a team comes together, how collaboration happens. So I think there's a big interest from young people to a new starters and organizations to get back into the office. I think there's resistance from middle-aged people with kids and lots of complicated lifestyles like myself, because that 40 minutes each way of commute is valuable time that I'm now spending more time with my kids and doing a little bit more work. Um, and then there's an executive level in most organizations. And this isn't doesn't reflect Deloitte, but in organizations that don't have high levels of trust who want to see people back in the office. Um, but I think there's a few things that are easy to do at home uh, that are much more awesome if you're at home and that is creative work and focused work. And those tasks are really important. But if you look at holistically everything you need to do to be successful in your job, the other big chunk are all actually easier in the office, right? So meeting new people, building relationships, getting quick time with your boss, getting visibility so you can get promoted, you know, getting the vibe and the feeling of what's going on in the organization. All of those things are virtually impossible to do at home because all we're doing is jumping Teams meeting to Zoom meeting to Teams meeting to Zoom meeting. Um, and we did some simple measurements about how much time um, people spent talking to other humans in the office. And when you look at it from getting out of the train station, walking to the office, waiting for the elevator, going up in the elevator, grabbing a coffee, walking to a meeting room, walking back from a meeting room, going for a bio break, going for lunch, going for drinks after work. All of those minutes added up to us getting a vibe of what was going on in the organization, building trust, building relationships. All of them have disappeared when we're working from home. Yeah. And so as someone who's changed jobs twice since the pandemic, I'm hyper aware that my network isn't as strong. My I don't know as many people in the organization. So I think when we look at how do we, how do we work out what the right hybrid is, what the right model is for our organization and how do we convince employees, it's got to be all of those hard to quantify things that are much easier to do when we're face-to-face -face in person. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing is that we're often, I always want to add that we are intensive naval, naval gazers and we need to remember that 68% of the workforce don't work from home. Mm. Uh, I think that's the number in the US, pretty similar in Australia. So we are talking about other people like us 
and we are making out as if it's the majority of the world when it's not. Most people don't have the luxury of working from home and have been going to work through this whole thing. Yeah, which is amazing that uh, our GDP here is more of a service-led model now and, and less of a tangible product model. And we have yet to put that CX and EX equal each other. Um, and that's what's what's fascinating to me, right? Because it, it didn't really matter as much on the other side. And now we're starting to see the, the supply and demand flipped on its head, which, which kind of leads me into my final question um, for you, Greg, tonight is, is really is uh, as organizations pay more for human capital, the expectations obviously increase, right? It's, it's not viewed as it's saying I'm paying you more, not for the same job I expect more out of you because I'm paying you more for that role. I've seen this real push with a lot of clients and, and, and individuals that I speak with quite often. Organizations are now trying to measure performance and get their hands around performance because never before did they really measure it. Um, it was always geared towards the output and the outcome. Um, as organizations try to get their arms around performance and, and really crafting, I guess, um, data points that they should start to collect or look for, um, or even just breaking down a, a sales funnel process, you know, or an operational process, what are some of the things that they should start to do to really fully evaluate what performance is and means for a particular role within an organization? Yeah, it's it's hard, right? I've worked in some big organizations that had really structured performance processes that were tick box, tick box exercises. Yeah. And I've worked in really small companies that have just had really good manager-employee relationships that were picking up enough signals that performance management wasn't necessary. I think... Um, that if it becomes too structured and too formulaic, then you're starting to miss the point. And I think a lot of organizations have stepped back from that. I think it's, to me, it's about really about measuring the employee experience and using that, every, I use the word proxy a lot today, but using that employee experience, customer experience, you know, those signals to try and get a picture of how someone's, um, work experience is going and whether they're satisfied, whether they're challenged, whether they think they're performing. I think it's a complex topic and it needs a lot of signals, but mainly it needs authenticity uh, and a belief in, in assisting employees to be their best human. No, it's, it's been awesome, Greg. This has been such an amazing conversation. Yeah. And, and again, we'd love to spin off in so many topics. <laughs> I know. Another, I'm another sure HR Evolution uh, fans <laughs> will want to too. So um, no, I, I don't at this moment, Kevin. <laughs> so I, I totally forgot the last question that we ask every guest, Jonna. I should have uh, probably armed you and prepped you with this question, but I will ask it for you um, and, and for us, uh, more or less. Since you kind of touched on it, uh, the hybrid, right? we're all gearing and looking towards the future. We always like to ask our guests in your estimation, Greg, um, where is the future of work headed? Uh, so I think humans are naturally social beasts. We thrive on relationships. Uh, during my time in the organizational network analytics uh, market, we could see the average person had 150 odd relationships in a year, just electronically, right? So I think, and there's heaps of good research being published showing that work from home and hybrid teams are less connected, you know, to the organization. And I really think we're still in a honeymoon period. 
where most people have transitioned office-based or primarily office-based relationships and been able to translate them into remote relationships. But I think for new starters, for graduates, for people uh, who are remote from the start, uh, I think it's hybrid is a terrible scenario. I think, um, uh, again, another phrase, it's not mine, but the idea of frictionless resignations, that increasingly you can finish working for one large Silicon Valley company on a Friday, post your laptop off to them, on Monday receive another laptop in the mail, log on in the same bedroom in the same pair of pajamas, start working for a new organization. That's making it so much easier for people to switch organizations. And I think they're more inclined to do that when they haven't got that network and that inclusion that comes much more when you're in an office at least some of the time during the week. Yeah, I love that. Because I think I, that's, that social connection is so important. It's almost feeling like family or friends and it's harder to break those connections there's a little bit more inertia, like you're saying, than, than how easy it is right now. Because if you don't meet anybody, you're never probably going to see them again. And it's a very easy yeah. dismount. I, I love that point. Well, Greg, I just want to say thank you again so much uh, for being an, an incredible guest, uh, a leader in the space, um, and for sharing a lot of these great insights with us today. I, I know I learned a lot. I have about six or seven pages of notes um, but uh, fascinating conversation and discussion. And thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of the show. Awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for uh, asking lots of great questions. I, I love talking to smart people. So this has been super awesome. <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll cut that part of it and start adding it to my emails. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was great. Thanks for, thanks for the time, Greg. It was yeah. awesome. <laughs> Thank you.